This is the word of the Lord according to Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls himself David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Well, as I was uh, preparing this message, I noticed that I must have been hanging out in Mark 12 a little too much. It's uh, it's come loose. So that's always my first sign that I'm done reading this Bible and I get another one and start marking it up. So perhaps uh, that's time. Well, many of you know that before God called me to be a pastor over 30 years ago that I was a middle school teacher and coach for seven years. And one day after school, I was shopping. Yes, honey, you heard me right. One day after school, I was shopping for some cookies for a Fellowship of Christian Athletes event that evening. And one of my students noticed me and was very surprised to see me shopping in a grocery store, as my wife would also be surprised at that point in time to see me in a grocery store. Since he had always just seen me at school and it hadn't occurred to him that one of his teachers would be grocery shopping. Well, the student came up to me with his mom and said, Mr. Walker, what are you doing here? I said, I'm buying some cookies. (laughs) Well, he was still having a hard time thinking through this, uh, me being there doing such a task because he only thought of me as a teacher, and teachers hang out at school, not grocery stores, right? He probably thought I even lived at school. It hadn't occurred to him that I was more than a teacher, that I was also just a regular person who ate and slept and cut my grass, just like his own dad. Well, the Jews of Jesus' day were the same way when it came to their thoughts about the promised Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, the Anointed One. They thought he would be a great prophet like Moses, who would free them from their enemies, like Moses freed the Israelites from the Egyptians 1,500 years before. They had not considered that the Messiah would be God himself. They had not considered that the Messiah, the one they longed for, would be God himself. Let's pray. Father, as Joshua prayed, I also pray that you would give us open eyes and open ears and especially open hearts. Holy Spirit, I invite you to come and to speak to each of us this day. Give us the word of God which is living and active to do surgery in our hearts, to change us and transform us, to conform us to the image of Christ. Bless us this day with your presence and your power and let your purposes be accomplished. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, please open your Bibles or devices to Mark 12, verse 35. And as you're turning to Mark 35, let me give you a summary of the past few weeks as we've been in Mark. From Mark 11 to the end of the book, uh, we are given a look at the last week of Jesus' life. And during the past few weeks, we've seen the religious leaders, Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, the scribes, uh, asking Jesus a series of questions in order to trap him to have an accusation against him. But they failed. Amazing. 
Mark 12, 34 tells us no one dared to ask him any more questions. But before we look at these verses 35 through 37, let's consider a few passages where we see the identity of Jesus being questioned. Uh, you'll see these up on the screen. Mark 4, 41, speaking of the disciples, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Remember, they were caught in the storm, about ready to, the boat to go under. And uh, they looked at Jesus when he said, peace be still. And all of a sudden, everything was just perfectly calm. And they said, who is this guy? In Luke 5.21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Of course, he's healing the paralytic, which is kind of a God thing too, so they question him. John 8.53, they said, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? People wondered who Jesus was, and a lot of them, you know, fired those out there to accuse him of blasphemy and other things. Finally, in Matthew 16, he asked his disciples who they think he is. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Here are the guys that have been traveling with him. And he wants to know if they've observed enough, if they've seen enough, if they put things together and recognize that he is the Messiah. Who do you say that I am? And then Peter empowered by the Holy Spirit, says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. Peter nailed it. And you know what, you know what I want for all of us? I want us to nail it when it comes to the identity of Jesus. I want us to understand he is one person in whom two natures are united because that's the basis of our faith. He is fully God and fully man. Well, in Mark 12, 35 to 37, Jesus is going to reveal the truth of who he is by asking them all a question. And just like that student that saw me in the grocery store and had to enlarge his concept of who I was, the Jewish people needed to enlarge their concept of the Messiah. The Messiah was more than just a great teacher or a prophet. He was God himself. Let's look at verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, the word simply is implied there. He's saying, How can the scribes say that the Christ is simply the son of David? And we'll see that roll into verse 36 in a minute. But just the, the, the scribes knew the Messiah would be a descendant or son of David. All right, let's look at a few passages where they would have gotten that from. In 2 Samuel 7, 16, talking about God speaking about David, he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. How's that going to be a forever thing? Well, it's through the Messiah. 
In Psalm 89, verse 3 and 4, you, God, this is David speaking. He says, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Who is that offspring that is going to have a throne and a kingdom forever? It's the Messiah. And then in the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 23, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, capital B. In other words, a descendant. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, in other words, Yahweh, the personal name of God that he gave to the Jewish people. The Lord is our righteousness. So this righteous branch of David, who he will be a descendant of David in the flesh, is also going to be the Son of God, Yahweh, the Lord himself. Now, let's go back to chapter 12 and look at verse 35 and 36 together. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? When David himself, in the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit of God, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now this verse is a quote from Psalm 110, verse 1, which says the Lord, again, all capitals, in other words, Yahweh, says to my Lord, the word Lord there is Adonai, which is a word they use to substitute for Yahweh because they, they felt like they shouldn't be saying God's personal name, so they would substitute Adonai. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So in other words, God the Father, the Lord, Yahweh, is speaking to God the Son, Adonai, whom David calls my Lord. And just to, just to show you this is, this is um, speaking about the Christ, Hebrews 10, 12, and 13 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So the Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to Adonai, said to the Messiah. Now let's look at verse 37. So David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? In other words, how could the Lord, the Messiah, God himself, be David's son? Interesting. Do you see how he's trying to enlarge the concept of what they thought, who they thought the Messiah was by asking this question? and they're using Scripture. Yes, he's David's descendant, but he's also the Lord who will have his enemies uh, will be a footstool. So the answer to the question, how could the Lord, the Messiah, be David's son? The answer is the Messiah is David's son and David's Lord all at the same time. In other words, he's both man and God, both God and man. And we see this truth in some of the following scriptures that I'll share with you now. <clears throat> so hang with me. There's a lot of scriptures we're going to be looking at, but when you consider the identity of Christ, you have to put all of these together to have a really good view 
of this one person in whom two natures are united. All right. Luke 1, 31 to 33. And this is the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. He's a human son. He's also the son of the Most High. He's going to be given an earthly throne, but he's also going to be given a heavenly throne and a heavenly kingdom, an eternal kingdom as well. So we, we see both man and God in this. And then in John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is this Word? Verse 14, And the Word became flesh. Christ took on humanity. He took on flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then lastly, Romans 1, verse 3 and 4. Concerning his Son, concerning Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So in the flesh, he was descended from David, but because he died and rose again through the power of the Holy Spirit, he was declared to, to be the Son of God. So let's look at a few more verses that declare these two natures so that we can see this more fully. All right, first of all, Jesus is fully God. Uh, John 1, 48 through 49. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Speaking to Jesus, how do you know me? We've never met. How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, Philip was going to introduce him to Jesus. So out of sight, all right, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Philip's thinking, wow, I never saw you. You saw me? So Nathanael said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And then in John 8, 58, Jesus himself declares him to, himself to be fully God when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Remember in Exodus 3, where Moses, where God is speaking to Moses, he says, I am who I am. I am the everlasting one. I am the eternal one. And of course, they picked up stones to, to cast at Jesus at that point because he was claiming to be Yahweh, the eternal existing one. John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And then lastly, one of my favorite scenes in Scripture in John chapter 20, Jesus has appeared to the disciples after the resurrection, and he just comes right into the room. Uh, doesn't need to open the door or anything. He just comes right in the room. Well, Thomas is not there. And so when Thomas returns, they said, we've seen the Lord. He's risen. He was here. And then Thomas says, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my finger in the nail print and my hand into his side. So eight days later, Jesus shows up. And he said, Thomas, be believing and not unbelieving. Here, I'll show you. Here's the evidence. Put him in there. 
And then Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus kind of rebukes him and says, uh, do you believe because you saw? Blessed are those who don't see me and yet believe. All right. All right, let's look at some passages now that talk about uh, Jesus being fully man. Because it's one thing to believe that Jesus is fully God, but there's been a lot of heresies over the centuries that have said that Jesus wasn't really fully man. In other words, because we can't quite understand how those two natures can be in one person, we begin to think of ways that we can make it work in our own mind. All right? But Jesus is fully man. Luke 2, 7, speaking of Mary, it says she gave birth to her firstborn son. Jesus was born. He was wrapped in swaddling cloths. He was laid in a manger. He was a baby. Luke 2, 52 says Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. In other words, he grew mentally, physically, spiritually, and socially. As a human, he grew. He was born and he grew. He was human, fully human, without sin. And Luke 4, 1 and 2 says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired. He got hungry. Now, it's important to note that Jesus got hungry. He did not get hangry. I just learned that phrase a couple days ago, so I thought, I've got to put that in the, I gotta put that in the message. <laughs> Jesus was hungry. He was not hangry. For those of you that don't know that term, in other words, some people get a little angry when they get hungry. That wasn't Jesus. He was just hungry, not hangry, all right? Um, Luke 23 then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus died. He was fully man and fully God. Dr. Wayne Grudem says this about the two natures of Christ. The biblical teaching about the full deity and full humanity of Christ is so extensive that both have been believed from the earliest times in the history of the church. But... A precise understanding of how full deity and full humanity could be, he uses the word combined. I like the word better. I like united as there. Full deity and full humanity could be united together in one person. That was formulated over uh, gradually over a period of time, and it finally reached its final form in what's called the Chalcedonian definition in 451 A.D., in other words, for centuries after Christ and after the New Testament was written and after they'd studied, they recognized that he was fully God and fully man, but how do we explain this in a statement, in a confession? And so finally, after a few councils and a few writings, probably starting with the Apostles' Creed and then the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Ephesus, and finally to this council at Chalcedon, which was a, a city in Turkey, uh, they came up with this. Let me just read the confession of Chalcedon. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable and rational soul 
and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. In other words, subsistence. He, was, uh, he subsisted as God and also as, as man. In all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God according to the manhood, and one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, and these, these words are important, inconfusedly, they weren't confused, unchangeably, they'll remain forever, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union. In other words, they just weren't all mixed up and around. Two natures in their own entities, own subsistence, and yet in one person. Now, if you ask me, do I fully understand that? No. I'm sharing with you what the scriptures say and where I'm at, and then we have to keep growing together to learn more and more and to to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So let me continue. The distinction of nature is by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person, one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus himself has taught us in the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. It took 400 years for the church to get to the point where they could put all of this truth together and to be able to say in a fairly precise way who Jesus is, all right? Now, Dr. Grudem summarizes the biblical teaching about the person of Christ as follows. And you're going to learn this, so pay attention. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. All right, say it with me. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. Jesus Christ was fully God fully man in one person and will be so forever. All right, I think you're getting it. Good job. So there you have it. Christ declared he was fully God and man, fully man. The scriptures declare it, and the early church fathers finally figured out a precise way to declare it. So one last question. Why is it so important that the Messiah be both fully God and fully man? Anybody have, were you thinking of that question? David was. Thank you, David, for asking that question. I'll explain it to you. All right. First of all, why did Jesus have to be fully God? All right. First, only if Jesus is divine, in other words, fully God, can he be a full and complete revelation of God. Only God can totally and completely reveal himself. If Jesus is not God, then how can he be God's final word supremely revealing God to us? John 1.18 says this, No one has ever seen God, the only God, referring to Christ, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So Jesus reveals God completely only if he is divine. That's, why, that's one reason he must be fully God. Secondly, if Jesus is not God himself, the redemption 
he brings is powerless to forgive and save. It is God that we've offended. Only he can take away our sin. Unless Jesus is divine, his death is irrelevant to our moral status before God. Only God can save. Isaiah 43, 11 says, I, even I, am the Lord, again, all capitals, and apart from me, there is no Savior. Thirdly, because Jesus Christ is fully God, he deserves our devotion, and he is worthy of our worship. And I know worship is not just singing. Worship is a lifestyle. But I so much appreciate our worship ministry. I just want to say thank you to all of you involved in in that. He deserves our devotion, and he's worthy of our worship. If he were not divine, then such worship would be nothing less than blasphemous. Revelation 5.12, you'll recognize these words from the song this morning. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then verse, verse 14 says, And the four living creatures said, Amen. Amen. All right. And the elders fell down and worshiped. You know, we need a little more amen around here. And we need a few more people falling down every once in a while. Work on that this week, okay? So Jesus must be fully God, but he also must be fully man. First, Jesus had to be made like us in order to make atonement for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus had to take on a human body and die and rise in order to destroy death and the devil. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, in other words, to appease God's wrath for the sins of the people. Secondly, Jesus must be fully, fully man. The humanity of Christ is also central to Paul's argument that Jesus overturned the work of Adam. So when we think about Christ, sometimes we call him the second Adam. He overturned or reversed the corruption and the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin. Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's disobedience, first Adam, the many were made sinners. But by one man's obedience, the second Adam, Christ, the many will be made righteous. Only as God did Christ have the power to bear our sins and conquer them, but only as man was he qualified to do so. In order to defeat Satan, he had to, to overturn Adam's sin. He had to become as a human and to die so that Satan would be conquered. Thirdly, as a real human being like us, Jesus Christ could truly serve as our representative before God. And I love this verse in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Holy God, sinful people, Christ, fully God and fully man, 
reconciles and brings man back into relationship with God. Jesus Christ, who is the only person who was fully God and fully man, was the only, there's only one mediator that can do that. The early church father, Irenaeus, said, he became like us so that we could become like him. Isn't that a beautiful thought? He became like us so that we could become like him. 2 Corinthians 8 9, I think, is best expressed that. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he was God. He had the glories of God in heaven. Yet for your sake, he became poor. He set aside some of those. He, he veiled those and, and came and took on flesh and lived among us and was tempted and suffered the things that we suffer. He became poor so that you through his poverty, through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, might become rich. It's called the great exchange. Christ took our sins and gave us his righteousness. It's the best deal you'll ever hear. So let me close with two application questions. How will you respond to such a God who became like us so that we might become like him? How will you respond to a God who became like us so that we might become like him? How, you, how will you respond to God's love, grace, mercies that are new every morning and lavished you with his love and proved it. When you say, how much does God love us? That much. He hung on a cross. Second question, will you commit the time to study God's word in order to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ? As we go to God in prayer and beseech the empowerment of the Holy Spirit who inspired men to write this word and ask him to open our hearts to capture us and for us to receive this word in such a way that we'll recognize who Christ is, what he did for us, and how we should then live. That takes time. It takes making it a priority in your life. We uh, heard a quote from A.W. Tozer in our EQUIP uh, cohort yesterday. A.W. Tozer, who was a pastor in the middle of the 20th century, he says, What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I hope that when you think about Christ, that you'll remember that he is fully God. He is God himself. And yet he took on humanity. He was fully man so that he could pay the sin debt for us so that we might have the hope of heaven, the hope of glory. Let's pray.